Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Onward, a podcast dedicated to highlighting issues trans and non-binary singers face today and how choral directors and musicians can make their rehearsal spaces more equitable for all, delivered to you in a bite-sized podcast. My name is Sammy, and my wonderful co-host is off-selling seashells by the seashore. (laughs) But we had such a great conversation with Dr. Jay Saplon that we recorded another episode. That's right. It's a two-for-one sale with Dr. Jay Saplon. We're going to be talking about voice placement in choral music, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. That's oh, that's so beautiful. Sorry, <laughs> uh, yeah. I just got taken a little taken back there. That was absolutely incredible. But we also need to talk about how to get them in the choir and <laughs> the audition process behind that. So I want to segue into our next topic, mm. which is just about assigning voice parts, um, specifically geared towards our trans and non-binary singers, students, musicians. What, what was one of the phrases? Um, I don't know. Oh, oh, God, you had such great like little words to call your... Um, Marvelous the music Marvelous makers. music makers. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was thinking of. I was thinking... Yeah. I, I don't know why I thought... I thought manic music makers. I don't know why I also thought that. Also that, though. <laughs> also that. <laughs> but just thinking about just placing in voice, I want to just hear from both of you, um, because I'm very new to this topic. We still haven't covered this in some of my classes, and even though I'm a senior, that's a different issue. Uh, just like, <laughs> uh, what is both of your just general philosophies on placing singers in the appropriate section? Um, I think for me, it uh, it starts with establishing an environment of comfort. Um, because if you're going to do a quote-unquote audition, which is just like a toxic concept to begin with, Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're going to have um, an ensemble where students have to meet certain requirements to get in, mm-hmm. um, so much traditionally in auditions are the adjudicators don't say anything. You come in, you sing, you leave, and that is it. Instead of like it being a conversation, creating mm-hmm. a space where they feel comfortable. Because if you're a singer, you know that if you're stressed out, you are not going to sing well, right? You're not going to be able to put your best foot forward. So first it starts with creating an environment that they feel safe to um, be themselves in. And I think after that environment is created, it's about seeking to understand where that individual's voice wants to be. Mm -hmm. Um, they might have preconceived notions of what their voice can do. Mm -hmm. I like to always vocalize people in an audition environment to show them that perhaps their voice can do other things Mm -hmm. and like trick them into that moment of like, oh my God, what's a head voice? How did that just happen? Or whatever the case may be. I can't tell you how many like high school sopranos have walked in and they're like, I'm an alto. And I'm like, honey, (laughs) you just haven't accessed your head voice, but you speak like a soprano. (laughs) So like uh, when it comes to something like that, uh, I think just seeing where the voice is on that given day, understanding the the passaggio locations for voice classification, like uh, in Richard Miller's The Structure of Singing, things like that. Um, that is really the foundational thing in terms of figuring out what does this voice want to do and what is it capable of. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we're going to segue to this in a little bit, but when you have a singer 
who whose voice might have a proclivity for soprano, mm-hmm. but that individual wants to sing tenor. How do we navigate that? And I yes. think that that's that that's that's a broader conversation that I think we're going to get to in a few minutes. But in general, for me, voice placement is about making the singer comfortable and you having the pedagogical background and wherewithal to accurately essentially diagnose what that singer's voice can do Mm -hmm. Um, regardless of section because you might have someone who is a soprano but their voice is massive yeah you're not going to put them in the soprano section if you want a light soprano sound they're going to have to sing alto at the very least yeah um, if they're incapable of modifying or blending. So um, it's a lot to do with vocal color, vocal weight. Um, how wide is the vibrato? Is there any vibrato at all? Yeah. Uh, things like that. Lots of things to consider when it comes to voice placement. But if the singer is not comfortable, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. That's where I would start. What about you, Jace? I think what <clears throat> I would start off with is just building a culture uh, within the, your program to ensure that uh, a soprano part is not necessarily connected to one's gender expression or gender identity. What I mean by that mm-hmm. is, I Very know, that. right? So, like, I I know, you know, I have had conversations <laughs> with young trans singers about like, oh my gosh, you know, um, I am, I, I really want to sing soprano. Um, but I'm I'm a bass, and I, I I want to I want to be able to sing that because to me that'll that'll let me live in a sense of gender euphoria, right? And which a conversation I have to have with that singer is like, listen, like this is a tessitura that we're going to be singing in for this semester, and so what's most important for me is that you are able to have an experience in this class that doesn't do harm, right? Yes. So. Like, especially I think with our our trans and our NB like like singers and students, like they the it we have to create a culture in which soprano does not necessarily mean I need to sing this so that because I am blank, right? Singing soprano is about this is the very much the criteria of what Stevie said, right? It is range, it is color, it is what what this this voice or this voice part is most emblematic and safe for what I for what my voice is doing. For me, in the mm-hmm. context of that, and being sure to take the time to say that to your students and singers is really important, because it teaches them the value to say, "Me singing a me not singing soprano makes me less trans or less you know not less of a yes. member of the binary community." It does nothing to do with that entirely. In fact, me singing bass is an affirmation of my identity. Me singing bass Mm. is part of my safety blanket as a choral musician, as a choral artist, as a magical musical musician or whatever I said before. (laughs) Um, I also think when it comes to placing singers in the appropriate section, like I also allow for the possibility to say that, you know, you may be a bass for this piece, but you may be a tenor Mm -hmm. for this piece, or you may be an alto for this piece. Because every single piece has its own specific needs or has its own specific 
uh, way of breathing and living and existing, which means that sometimes we code switch to a different voice part. And so yeah. I tried this new concept and I think has been really helpful is that, you know, I think about the repertoire before the hearing. Um, I call them hearings. I don't call them audition, audition. So I have, I think of all the repertoire before the specific hearing and I actively think about what are the many, what are the infinite ways in which this voice can, 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 can exist in? Is mm -hmm. this voice part a possibility for this piece? Is this voice part a possibility for this piece? Um, and I think that's good responsive work, especially for a younger voice that could fluctuate between a soprano and alto part because those two parts carry different compositional behaviors depending uh, on, on the repertoire and the era and things like that. Um, and the same thing for a tenor and a bass, same thing for altos and tenors, right? I, Stevie's research is really good about this with the, with the, with the voice line recombination, but like mm -hmm. I, the, there's so much pedagogical goodness mm -hmm. when someone is not tied to one specific voice part if that is possible. That may not yes. be possible with all voice parts, I completely understand, but like we have to get, my aesthetic exists within a chorus in which we explore the infinite variety of sounds, right? Yeah. I don't want to facilitate a choral ensemble in which there is a specific sound tied to my the way in right. which I teaching yeah. philosophy is because then it's, it should be malleable to the repertoire. Right. And it's no longer yeah. about the singers. It's about you. So I always try to see if there are ways in which the soprano two can sing an alto one and alto one can sing alto two and alto two can sing soprano two. And if that's healthy and if that's possible, we're going to do that. Right. Because yeah. again, you're growing your students to become flexible, empathetic and globally minded musicians. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, this is a concept that happens in middle school classrooms all the time. Yes. You know, we're, we're trying to develop the whole voice, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, you're going to be a part one on this piece. You're going to be part three on this piece, whatever. Da, 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 da. It's like, why, why does the shift happen usually around like sophomore, junior year of high school where you get pigeonholed into this one voice part and you will forever learn that. And like, then you have these 17, 18, 19 year old girls who have underdeveloped head voices, for instance, mm -hmm. or you have uh, basses and, and individuals whose voices have changed who can't access their head voice anymore because mm -hmm. they were stuck in one position utilizing one chunk of their range for a specific amount of time instead of continuing to develop the entire vocal instrument. Absolutely. And the best way to do that is to jump around between sections like Jace is saying, you know, like if you if you're doing uh, like if you want to do a faithful adaptation of a gospel piece, for instance, that's usually three-part tight harmony and all the lower voices sing what we would call the alto part. Mm -hmm. And they're belting up F, G, A, like yeah. that's a completely different modal register mm -hmm. than, uh, than saying, okay, we have soprano, alto, tenor, bass. Like, and that's why if you have those like four-part arrangements of gospel music, it doesn't sound authentic because yeah. that's not true to the sound, you know? So if you have diverse repertoire that facilitates the access of these different areas of the voice, I think that that's definitely 
like far more pedagogically interesting, creative, and yeah. and just uh, all around good. <laughs> I I had better words. I had better <laughs> words, but they left me. <laughs> but I think that's like you know that speaks to why this idea of having a diversity of repertoire that's not just necessarily about the languages that you sing right or the cultures that the, the pieces stem from but also like the topic right or yes. uh, the ways in which you music right so is it on a piece of paper or is it something that can be taught by rote like that speaks to a foundational element about queer theory right ensuring that no one is just a soprano but you are mm -hmm. you may be singing multiple voice parts throughout the semester speaks to a foundational element of queer theory because queer theory is all about ensuring that structures or pre-existing structures are constantly challenged right so that the individual yes. can benefit from a holistic perspective of existence right in which the ways in which these bodies and voices can exist through a vast variety of ways of being right that's essentially what you know queer theory argues um, and what why queer theory exists and this benefits the trans and non-binary and the just you know and it 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 benefits the queer singer because what mm -hmm. it models for them on a meta level is that we do not pigeonhole or shoehorn perspectives and identities within this ensemble yes yes i love that and yeah. that and that segues so well into um talking about when you when you do have a trans or gender expansive singer or just someone who isn't feeling comfortable in their person in whatever section that they're in if that if singing in that particular range just causes them discomfort or mm -hmm. something like that and they've decided to vocally transition whether that's uh through voice therapy or just trying to strengthen um their mode one or mode two mm -hmm. or um or if they're actually doing hormone replacement therapy mm -hmm. um, and what those effects look like. And if you've already created, as you're saying, Jace, an environment where people are constantly switching between voice parts, you've already inherently created a space where those individuals are going to feel safe coming up to you and saying, hey, can I try tenor on this next piece? Yeah. And you could say something like, yeah, 100%, let's talk about what your voice can do. Um, here are some things that you might have to navigate when trying to strengthen that register yeah. or something. And you could uh, provide a recombined line if the student's range can't facilitate the entirety of that range. Mm -hmm. But maybe they sing tenor on a piece where they can hit all the notes and mm -hmm. then you don't have to do a recombined line or whatever the case may be. Like but i love this idea of building in this community of malleability yeah. within the ensemble instead of like you were placed in soprano one at the beginning of the semester you're going to be soprano one till the end of the year mm -hmm. like you know people's voices yeah are more malleable than and that. this is a i think this is a, more, a rather new concepts that and i love hearing that a lot of choirs are doing this especially for young people because i completely agree i completely agree that i felt like i was pigeonholed to a certain um to a certain part and therefore a certain identity and how i'm supposed to reflect what that identity is supposed to be 
And just recently, I've had the opportunity to start singing more alto and um, and just playing around with more facets of my voice that I never knew I had available to me. And I can't I don't like don't know how best to describe it. It just feels right. You know what I mean? Like just getting that more opportunities to sing parts that I felt was closed off for me for a very, very long yeah. time. I also just mm. keep looking at your earrings. They're so cute. They're like these like little Lego brick earrings. Little <laughs> Yes. Um Yeah, I mean, how many times have you and I sat in a chamber singers rehearsal and the altos are singing and we're just noodling along behind them with them yeah because it's fun and we can and it's not a problem and of course like dr sparks if we walked up to her and we're like hey we want to sing the alto part for blah 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 she'd be like oh my god fine do it live your life yeah like um she's amazing but not all choir directors are as responsive to that they might have a response like oh i need to hear it in the sound before i can let that happen um, the eye roll. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's like to me that comes down to something that I talk about in my lectures, and it's what are you prioritizing? Are you prioritizing your personal image of what perfection is, or are you prioritizing the experience of your singers? Absolutely. What is more important to you? that that note be perfectly like uh i don't mean monotone as in uh uninteresting but just one one color sounds like one voice but it's 15 people and like yeah okay there are some directors that strive for that but if you're sacrificing the experience of your singers to get that what does it matter if your singers are miserable they're not going to be able to create and experience this art that we've dedicated our lives to Mm -hmm. you know like i always say to my ensembles and this goes back to jace's uh comments on joy is if you're not communicating something when you're singing or when you're performing or when you're when you're experiencing music even if it's in rehearsal if you're not communicating through the music with the music to listeners to yourself to the person singing next to you what is the point of what we're doing yeah are we doing it to show off are we doing it to be like look how look how perfectly in tune my choir can sing like of course notes and rhythms are important yeah but if they have no intention behind them who cares yeah you know like we just need to i would much rather have a slightly sloppy, super happy choir than a like machine precision, perfect performance that has no emotion behind it because the singers are terrified to be an individual. And like, I'm just not here for that. (laughs) No, and audiences can tell. Yeah. You know, oh my God. How many, really how many like professional ensemble performances or at ACDA have we been to where like they sing beautifully and they sang every note and rhythm on the page, but I felt nothing, mm-hmm. you know, but like, um, I remember when I was in grad school the first time around, <laughs> um, talking with, uh, my mentor, Paul Crabb at the university of Missouri, I remember talking to him about, this phenomenon of 
like the powerful choral performance, you know? Yeah. And um, he said, well, you know, if you go back and you listen to the Moses Hogan Chorale, the first time they ever sang at ACDA, and you listen to that track, just objectively listening for perfect notes and rhythms, mm -hmm. like you would be appalled. Yeah. Like it's, it's not the most musically accurate uh, performance in terms of the notes and rhythms and things mm -hmm. like that. But when they performed at ACDA, they got like a 15 minute standing ovation yeah. because the passion was there. The communication was there. And, and if we can provide to our singers and an, an environment where they are able to show and share more of that, more of their own passion, yeah. because you've created an environment where they can experiment and be flexible and try new things. Why the heck wouldn't you do that? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> true, true. <clears throat> I think that was fabulously stated, Stevie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'll step off my soapbox. <laughs> um, I think, are we, are we talking about methods for students that are vocally transitioning or I'm so sorry I like completely forgot the idea was to do that and then my ADHD then... brain chased <laughs> chased a rabbit that I felt was important we went down and a, a great hole I circled it <laughs> I, I circled it back to something relevant though yeah, continuing yeah, yeah. to create but, that environment but like just just in general like Dr. Saplan like what because we, we always like to offer something to music educators conductors whatever you may be um, on this podcast and I think what we want them to take away is like do you have any go-to methods or resources that they can acquire so that when they if they have a singer who's vocally <coughs> transitioning that they are educated prepared and they have like they have the language to do so yeah I mean I think it's just important to be cognizant when the when a singer right discloses to you that they uh uh, decided to undergo hormone replacement therapy or hormone affirming therapy or are going through uh, uh, speech therapy um, to uh, uh, for for a particular uh, to, for a particular reason um, is to one understand that like that information is is sensitive that information is uh, information that is disclosed to you out of trust and to uh, ensure that once someone discloses that to you, it's really important to understand what you say after is just as important. So what I when, when a student or a singer discloses that to me, immediately what I say right after is like, thank you so much for sharing that with me. Mm -hmm. How can I help you live your best life? On this yes, journey, yeah, I love that. What that look I love like that. what does that look like? What does that sound like? Right, and what mm -hmm. does joy mean to you with this information? You know, and that response is really important because, you know, we don't want to necessarily undergo this cycle in which the decision to go through HRT or through speech therapy then sends them back into this colonial idea of what gendered is. Yes. Mm -hmm. So. Like if a, uh, a student that was assigned female at birth decides to go through HRT, it's important for me as an educator to understand what happens to the larynx 
when that student goes through HRT because that larynx will expand, cartilage will form on the larynx and that will alter the voice, right? And so I have to be cognizant to communicate with that student to say, hey, if you are going to take testosterone, right? Like these are the things that will happen to the voice because mm -hmm. I need to make sure you know this information. And so my job is to help you uh, create a voice or to uh, honor your voice in ways that you can navigate this appropriately, right? Uh, this, something different entirely will happen, right? When a assigned male at birth will go through, um, well, will go through HRT, right? So the yeah. larynx may have already grown and the larynx may already have cartilage on it in which the decision for the individual, right? May, they may want to go through speech therapy in which if they go through speech therapy, three things are often work, worked on, which is pitch, right? How can you speak in different parts of your, uh, of your voice so that the pitch is higher or the pitch is lower? Um, prosody, which is how loud the speech could be or where the stress of this pitch could be, um, and vocal resonance, right? The vocal resonance could, ex be, ex could exist in a different part of the voice. It could be more loftier, it could be forward, it could be further back, depending on who that person is. And I say all of these things as information that essentially what I'm telling the listener is to understand that it is up to us to educate ourselves as much yes. as possible so that yes. we do not do harm to the student. Not only that, but we don't expect them to educate us. Exactly. Yes, Stevie, yes. a thousand percent. We need to do yeah. the work. And we also need to be, respond to the fact that like, we have a crucial part in that journey to ensure that mm -hmm. the way in which we are facilitating the voice and help helping guide the voice is endemic to their euphoria, endemic to their joy, endemic yes. to where they see the voice going um, so yeah i hope that was helpful that was a lot yeah, of information that was, that was super helpful i felt like i was sitting in one of my own lectures you even presented <laughs> the three categories of voice therapy in the same order that i do pitch prosody and resonance mm -hmm. i was like okay i'm sitting in my own acda lecture right now this it's is very great meta right now <laughs> <laughs> um you must have gotten that from my lecture that you saw. <laughs> I'm sure I did. Ooh, I have like I have two more quick things, if that's okay. No, um, no, I, also, sure. I also think it's really important uh, with uh, students or singers that are going through HRT or speech therapy is that we really emphasize a habit of good and healthy breathing, mm. right? So just being cognizant that you know the singer is aware of the musculature that is involved. Yeah right? Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, when they take a breath, right? The, the singer is aware of what is happening in their body. They are living and aware of what their body is doing when they're taking a breath, right? The other thing too is I'm a big proponent of semi-occluded vocal tract technique. Yes, right? SOBTs. If we, the more lip buzzing that we can do with singers and students, the more we can pull out a straw and sing through a melody or a phrase, right? Is a, yes. is a great act for the singer or the student to really be aware of where their voice mm -hmm. is at that day, where the voice is going, mm -hmm. and how their breath impacts their ability to sing in the ways they want to sing. Yeah, it's all about making sure that the technique, the fundamentals of the technique 
remain constant yes regardless of what the voice is doing and allowing the voice's capability to dictate the direction but always having the breath the ease of vocal production um oh we could go on and on unfortunately we are out of time though uh we could literally go on for yeah, hours <laughs> yeah this is amazing jace you are wonderful um thanks y'all this was fun Sammy? yeah yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Jay Safan, for being on two episodes of the podcast. <laughs> we just we just love you so 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 much, and you have such you have offered such great insight and to our listeners. And I just want to say thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. This was uh, fun. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, well, thank you, Jace. Signing off. This is Sam and Stevie. <laughs> uh, catch you next episode. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs>